Hello, and welcome back to another episode of I Love This, You Should Too, a podcast. It is. That's Indy Randawa. Hi. And I'm Samantha Hughes. And today we are here talking about Little Women, the 2019 remake of the classic Little Women. Yeah, I think that's what it was called. I think they're all called Little Women. (laughs) So, Indy, how is your quarantine week going? Not too bad. I'm riding a bike a lot. I learned to ride a bike very late in life. last summer? Not quite. (laughs) Okay, the summer before last summer. (laughs) But since learning to ride a bike, I became a professional bike instructor for a while. (laughs) Which is a little weird. Yeah, and then uh, now I just ride a bike every day for like a couple hours because I got the time. Yeah, you went out for like two hours, three hours today. Just exploring. It was good. It's good for you. So other than biking, what else is happening? What else is happening? You're asking, first of all, like you don't know. Like we're not together (laughs) 20 hours a day and second of all like i have things going on in my life right now which i also do not what do you got going on um i'm scanning in old meeting minutes it's very exciting my life is extremely exciting right now um but other than that yeah we've been biking a lot i baked more bread this week that's what you do i baked bread with beer in it which was exciting so i'm uh keeping busy so, Indy, the reason we're here mm-hmm. and the name of the podcast. When is it again? I love this. You should too. So, my question to you is I loved this. Did you? Sometimes I wish that wasn't the name of the podcast because I think about it. I love like 20 movies in the world. <laughs> What's love? Is it like an eight out of 10 plus? Are you just singing What's Love Got to Do With It in Your Head right now? You were dancing, and I could tell that that was the tune you were dancing to. So what rating out of 10 do you consider loving it? Nine? Eight. I might love this movie. Can we we have a prologue for a moment? Yes, we can. So I was interested. I've been thinking about this a lot. The idea of a movie being for you, right? You, when we were talking about... The Lighthouse? The Lighthouse a couple of weeks ago. You said like, well, this movie just isn't for me. This isn't the type of movie for me. It's for people like you, meaning me. And yeah, that's probably true. It's probably more appealing to film nerds for sure. Right. But then I was also talking to other people about movies like, um, like Raging Bull, which I think is one of the best movies ever made. It primarily focuses on a boxer. And people say, oh, I don't watch that. I don't like sports, so I'm not going to watch a sports movie. And I always contend that if a movie is good, it's going to transcend all of that sort of stuff. Like, sure, I'm not a little woman growing up in the 1860s, but if it's a good movie, it's going to go beyond that and it's going to appeal to me. Which is why I like it. Right. Love it, perhaps. I love it. So is that me being too demanding of movies? Saying that if it's good, it can appeal to everyone. Or is it like kind of the the idea of a beach read of like, no, this movie's only for these certain people. And that's fine. Is it fine? Am I being too demanding of movies? I'm not sure. Because I feel like there are movies that fit into both of those categories. And I feel like I feel differently about movies that fit into both of those categories. Maybe it's like you can be a good movie and be for one group. And that's all. And not have wide appeal. True. But I feel like if you're a great movie, a movie that I'm going to say I love, 
you kind of have to have some sort of universal appeal. Okay, yeah. But then, then on the other hand, like, what about a filmmaker who's like, no, this movie's not for you. This movie is for this group of people yeah. who doesn't have anything for them. And it's very specific. You take your stuff. You have so much for you. This isn't for you. But I don't know. I don't know. I've uh, been thinking about this very philosophically a lot lately about w- which movies are for different people. And if that's all right, if it can just be like, well, I don't like it. It's not for me. Because hmm. that feels like reductive and also if someone doesn't like a movie and you're, you're just like, oh, well, that kind of movie's not for you. That's the most dismissive thing. Mm-hmm. And I've hated that when people, if I criticize, like, um, I don't like Moulin Rouge. Right. I love musicals. Yes, you do. But I don't like that one. And b- people who don't know me well, and if I say that, they don't know that I'm a big musical fan. So they're like, oh, well, that kind of movie's not for you. And I was like, no, it's not. I don't like it. And here's why. And I can usually like, back up what I'm saying when it comes to movies about liking them or not. But I feel like it's so dismissive to tell someone that a movie's not for them. And then that's why they don't like it. Not because their opinions about that movie aren't valid. Like if you came at me about The Lighthouse and said, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. And you have good reasoning, that would be beautiful. And I love that. (laughs) But if someone was just like, yeah, it's not for me. It's for someone else. It's kind of taking the onus off the filmmaker. Right. You're saying like, "Uh, yeah, you're made up for someone else, so I don't have to like it, and it's fine. I don't know many filmmakers who are making exclusive work. Right. I feel like they want to tap into something that everyone's going to appreciate. The later Bring It On movies might be an argument for that, though. Because they're so niche. Because they found their niche, and they know that they're popular, and so they're just making them for that group of people. But then which one did we watch? Like five or something? Four? Four. One of those. Yeah. There was stuff in there I loved. Yeah. I'm not that niche that they're looking for. No. But there was some performances, some little jokes that go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And this is an odd one to talk about because I don't think either of us would argue that it's a great movie (laughs) that's going to transcend those things. But that's maybe one of those ones that is fine for being niche. But I think if you're a great movie... Maybe you have to go beyond that and be for everyone. Maybe. And I think that's a very delicate balance Mm -hmm. might be the right way to put it because I feel like there are definitely movies that are made um, and like some kids movies might be a really good like example where there's like over kids had jokes for adults and it's kind of dirty and then there's like kid things and there's teenager things and there's like little kid things there's bright colors for the babies and like it just it makes a little bit of concession for everybody but it tries really hard at it so are you saying that's a good example or a bad example of it's this? like a bad example of trying to be for everybody right so that you have to in order to make a movie that is for everybody that is really good it can't be obvious it can't be like oh here's i'm gonna pick on the lego movie but like here's a lego joke for adults and here's a lego joke for teenagers and like right it's just it's not like super finessed and it's not super like easy to watch without being like oh that was a stupid teenager joke. rather than making everything for everyone they have 10 percent for this person 10 percent. Mm-hmm. yeah i think that's the bad example but we were talking about big hero six last time yes and in my mind that's a good example that i feel like that is for any age gender culture whatever the humanity within it is kind of universal 
And that's why I think that movie is a great example of it. But I don't know. I don't have a, a great answer of this. But like, is it elitist of me to say like, no, a great movie should be for everyone? Maybe a little bit. But I understand where you're coming from. Is that like everyone should be able to watch it and say it's amazing. So let's bring it back now. <laughs> let's bring it back down. <laughs> so I feel like this movie, if I don't love it, this is the one I'd get the most pushback on because I know many people who just love it and they're um, rabid fans, mm. I would say. Okay. Because the worlds I come from are um, education and libraries. And those are both worlds that have a lot of little women fans. Mm-hmm. It is also nice that we're doing this after The Lighthouse because like The Lighthouse is a movie maybe targeted at... 30-year-old male film nerds. Yes. And Little Women is maybe targeted at 30-year-old female book nerds. True. Who usually I'm probably closer to in my demographics. Probably. So is this movie for me? I think so. I think that this movie has relationships in it that can kind of defy the gender roles that everybody has in this movie. I think that if you made this, and I'm sure someone has because everything gets gendered and changed, but I'm sure there's a Little Men book. Well, there is Little Men. She wrote a sequel called Little Men. What? You didn't know that? No? Yeah, well, Little Women was two books. The one, the the childhood years, and then the adult years. And then she wrote um, Little Men, which is not as good. I read that as well. Oh, I didn't know that. It's not bad. Mm. I don't remember a lot about it, but it's not nearly as good. And then there's Joe's Boys, I think, came out after. Okay. But yeah, there is a Little Men. Oh, okay. Well, I was just trying to make the point that I feel like the relationships in this kind of defy the gender roles and that it Mm -hmm. could be boys or girls, it could be men or women. And I think that um, it's not just female relationships in this. Yeah. Oh, I guess I never really like stated the obvious and then people are like he hates this movie how dare you it's very good <laughs> oh i never said that so if we're going like eight out of ten is loving it then yes i love it this is an eight out of ten movie for me excellent but i was kind of saying only i love movies that are a 10 out of 10 is like a love but yeah this is it's fantastic and i think this definitely is an example of something that is for everyone yes and if you're like it's probably men more likely who are going to be like well that's not for me because i need men in the title it says women in the title how dare they yeah i feel like that would chase a lot of people away but that's uh you're doing yourself a a great disservice well first of all if you're thinking like that you're probably a dick anyways but you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't go watch this movie just for for what it is Mm because it's it's beautiful it's um a great story which we knew going in yes but it's very well executed beautifully acted it as well yeah and beautifully shot too yes. i um i i think i said that last week in the um pre-episode was that like we know the story of little women that's not why we're watching this movie is because i've discovered some classic story that you haven't seen we know the story of little women this is a new adaptation and a retelling that is so beautiful and beautifully acted and just so well done that um like we had to watch it The one really sad thing that uh, strikes me about this is when this came out, the book was uh, 1868, right around there anyways. It was like a true rarity to see all these female characters and a wide variety of women all presented in one story. 
And the, you know what? Now the saddest thing. So now we are 140 years later. Still true. It's a true rarity to mm-hmm. see this many women sharing the screen and to have a variety of female characters in one story. And that yeah. fucking sucks, huh? It does suck. It really does suck. It like, was... It's great this is here. Yes. But it's so sad that this is... That we have to we keep to comment revisiting on it. this same story in order to get that kind of thing on screen. Absolutely. Like that we had to go to 1860s to get a story about women. Like, we could just write those now, guys. Exactly. Nothing's stopping exactly. us. Exactly. So I've talked about this book with many people throughout my life. And one thing everyone talks about is, uh, who are you? Which march are you? And I've only ever gotten one answer. <laughs> so who do you see yourself as? Um, I would like to see myself as an Amy, but I think I'm a Meg. Oh, you're that's the most different answer I've really? ever got. I've only gotten Joes. Really? Every person I've talked to said, like, oh, I'm a Joe, because I'm not... And they use the same phrase so often, which makes... <laughs> It's kind of ironic. You made a face and I know what you're going to say. Because they say like, I'm not like other girls. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which is so ironic because everyone says they're Everyone's a Joe. Everyone's a Joe. No, I think I'm, I would really like to be living that life like Amy, fancy and like, you know, aspiring to bigger things and, you know, loving that like fancy, pretty life. But I think all in all, I am a, I'm a Meg and I'm happy to live my regular person life and have, like, moments of glamour. And marry poor. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <laughs> um, so, Indy, who are you? Are you Joe because you're just not like other girls? I It's true I'm not like other girls. <laughs> but in other adaptations, or maybe when I had read the book... I can't even remember who I thought, but it was much more clear cut. This movie, and much to its credit, shows you that you, everyone, is a combination of these characters. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I couldn't pick one. I think in other adaptations, even though I love the 94 one, I might like the 94 one better. Oh. But I think a lot of that is nostalgia. Mm -hmm. This is a better movie. It's better constructed... The direction is better, but I love that movie more, you know, for like very personal reasons. I don't think I've seen the 94 movie since like probably mid 1990s. So watching this was like watching it almost new again. I had a lot of not trouble, but it was hard for me to say like, oh, this was different in this movie and this is different in the Mm -hmm. book because it's something that is is so familiar. Mm -hmm. But what I loved about this one, it did a great job of giving characters that we don't get a lot of characterization for always. Like Beth, in a lot of adaptations, she's just someone quietly playing piano in the corner. And here we get some more of Mm -hmm. her and we see that she is more fully realized of course she doesn't get the time and attention as as joe does but she felt much more complete and she gets a relationship in this which is really nice like she has the relationship with the um mr lawrence mr lawrence um she gets those moments with him Mm -hmm. which um i think in previous versions she like you said she just plays piano in the corner and she's the musical and quiet one and they do describe her as that in this version but she also has those quiet moments where she's in the house and she's clearly touching someone with her gift of music and it it shows how she really enriches um 
Mr. Lawrence's life without even really having to like go outside her comfort zone and become friends with him and become like build a relationship with him. She's literally just doing what she does and it helps him so much. Yeah, it's a it's a really nice touch and I like that I'm not a great classical music appreciator, but I think she's playing Bach and things like that in this. She's not playing uh, like hymns or simple things like yeah. she is in some of the other ones. You get to see the artist of, yes, of this character. Exactly. Because everyone else, like all the other sisters in this are so talented and just naturally talented. And it doesn't make sense for her to be able to play like simple things like hymns or Christmas carols or any of those things. Um and that's all that she's good at because this is clearly a very talented family. Um, and it doesn't make sense for her to be the only one who's not talented. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll get into the other characters later. But I just wanted to bring her up to show that in this movie, there are aspects of all of these characters yeah. that you can identify with. And I think that's what what makes it really special. Yeah, absolutely. So, Indy, I know that... From doing this podcast, I know that you always have some downsides to every movie that you watch. Life has downsides, Samantha. I know. <laughs> I know. But I would like to hear some of the things that you weren't so happy with in this version. Because that's one of the things, like, we know we both really like this story. But because it is a remake eight times over, seven times over. I think um, there are definitely things in this version that you can point out better than I can that maybe didn't work as well, things that they tried, anything like that. Do you have any any moments you'd like to mention? Yeah, it's funny because my favorite parts of this movie and my least favorite parts are the things that Gerwig has changed from the book. Oh. Because sometimes she does it to great success, and it shows how she's such a great craftsman of directing. Right. And how she's editing things together. And this is only her second directed movie, I believe. And she, you can see she's really coming into her own, and this is a career that I'm so excited to watch. Also, like, uh, I don't want to talk about The Lighthouse too much, but that's also his second movie. So we get these two directors... Very different ways, but making very ambitious second films. Right. And it just makes me so excited for what they're going to do next. Even if you hate things like The Lighthouse, even if you don't like this, you have to be excited for these careers of mm -hmm. these uh, two young directors. What was her previous movie? Lady Bird. Lady Bird. That's... Which is very good, too, but this this is better. This, this, I just like, I left that theater and I was just like, I can't even believe, like, what an incredible movie that was. And I already knew the story going in, so yeah. it wasn't like some action thriller or something like really exciting that I didn't know how it was going to end. It was full of plot twists and drama. It was like, I, I knew exactly how it ended. And I still left the theater being like, that was amazing and I can't wait to watch it again. The more I've been thinking about it, because we watched it, I didn't really write anything down for a day. And then today and yesterday, I started like thinking about mm -hmm. it and writing my notes. I really do need to watch it again because there's a lot of things that I'm going to talk about right now. What I think didn't work, what I don't know why it was done. Now I'm thinking, wait, were those the most clever things? <laughs> was that actually brilliant? And I was just looking at it being too attached to the source material. Mm. So the, what I'm talking about mostly is the fact that this is non-linear. So the book, they you start out with them as children, they grow up through right. time, and time is linear. This one is bouncing back and forth. 
So you get to see them seven years in the future and seven years in the past, and the shots are back and forth between mm-hmm. the two. I really liked that. I did not. And I think this is one where I might watch it again and change my mind. Mm-hmm. But I did have a lot of problems with it. Because it seems like this was done more than anything to address the uh, the lorry problem. Right. That's everyone's big issue with uh, with Little Women is the lorry problem. The lorry problem being that Lori ends up marrying Amy and not Joe. Right. And Joe marries Friedrich, you know, that guy, the the professor. <laughs> I'll just call him Friedrich. Yeah. Especially when you're young, you read this book, you're like, what? They don't end up together? And it's just a travesty. Yeah. And the first time I saw it, I probably felt the same way I as well. I think so. All these changes are done bouncing back around through time and i think a lot of it's done to make this less jarring like i can see that i also one thing i thought about was about how in any other chick flick kind of movie you marrying the man who proposed to your sister first would be like a huge deal and And a major plot point but this flowed so seamlessly and i really think that amy would benefit from having someone like Lori. yeah in this movie it does make sense and that's why i'm not sure me criticizing the changes to make that more palatable are Mm. valid or not but it seems like they um they tell you very early on that they don't end up together. So you don't have this vested interest in it about like being led that way that they are going to end up married. Friedrich is also introduced much earlier. So we have that seed kind of planted. It's not someone who just shows up in the end and swoops up Joe, which it kind of seems like in the book and other tellings of it. Then it doesn't make Amy seem like such a villain like she does in a lot of them. Right. It's also, like two we'll... parallel storylines that are happening. And you can see Joe moving away from Laurie and then moving towards her own thing. Yeah. And you see Joe and Laurie not working and some bits of Amy and Laurie early on. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem so jarring when he switches because it is jarring in the it book. It is, yeah. This just kind of seems like editing after the fact. Like they... They crowd tested this ending and they're like, oh, we don't like this bit about Lori being with Amy. So she's like, okay, well, I'll fix everyone's criticism about this. But maybe that's just smart. She knows that people don't like how it ended. So she addresses that. Mm -hmm. But I also felt kind of manipulated in that we know you don't like this thing. So I'm going to fix these things to make you like it. I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad. I think like how you called it the Lori problem. I think that she saw it as a problem and wanted to fix something that fans saw as a problem. I think that this was her way of being like, look, there is a way for this to work. And and it's not a modern retelling where they might have had like you know, they might have fought each other. It's like very rational, very calm. And there were nuances that happened completely separately that totally make sense when you watch them kind of parallel. I thought this part of the movie was great. You might be right. I I honestly don't know how I feel about this because it is a filmmaker seeing a problem with a story and addressing it. That's Mm -hmm. what she should be doing. That's, That's good directing. That's good rewriting of the source material. But then also I feel like, well, it is source material. And if you're going to just switch that about, 
why not switch the whole Lori thing all over? Then that's too much. Mm-hmm. This seemed kind of, um, I don't want to say underhanded, because I don't want to make it seem like Greta Gerwig is out there to like get you. But it seemed like a really subtle way to manipulate, because that's what filmmakers are doing. They're manipulating you into feeling certain things. Oh, of course. So it is her manipulating you to making this seem more acceptable. And I'm not sure if I don't like it just because I'm used to the old way, or if it was, in fact, this whole nonlinear idea. Mm-hmm. I'm really conflicted about that. So I feel like I don't even have an answer of <laughs> right now of saying like, that was great, or that was terrible. But the nonlinear stuff bugged me in some other ways. Like, when it starts out, you kind of just have these like fast paced vignettes. Mm-hmm. of like, here's this, here's this, here's this. And I know this story, so I'm like, okay, that's from this time, this is from this time. But if you were new to this, I feel like it would be very confusing. You know how I always kept up? Hmm. Um, Meg's hair would be up when she was married, and her hair would be down when she was a child. (laughs) And she was still at home. (laughs) And that's the other thing, because in the 94 version, characters like Amy would be played by two different actors for early and later. But here you have Florence Pugh, who's Great. We'll talk about that later. Though. Yeah. Playing a, I don't know, 11, 12 year old at some times. Yeah. And Florence Pugh's got to be in her early mid 20s. And she's playing like an 11 year old. And it's weird. She's 24. So she's very good. And I loved how her mannerisms changed for yes. those. But if you're not ready for it, you get the same 20. 20- like two-year-old at the time, probably, yes, yeah. playing a 11-year-old and then uh, maybe like 18, 19-year-old. And you don't always have those markers to tell when this when this is. It's true. You do have to be playing, like paying really good attention. But I think um, that the acting is so good in this that it, it kind of explains itself once you ease yourself into their reality. There were a few times when... You would see the the children versions of them doing something, and they just seemed like these really petulant, assholey adults because you had just seen them being being adults, right? Oh, see, and- I was so into it that I didn't really even notice the fact that yes, all of these women are like full adults, and they are not like even seventeen or eighteen, and could probably pass for you know way younger. But I think that. The acting is so great in this and the um, the direction is so good in this that I honestly didn't even notice. And I get that this nonlinear thing isn't just about the, uh, the Laurie problem. Gerwig often would juxtapose two scenes that take place seven years apart, mm-hmm. but have it set up in the past and then it paying off in the future. Yes. But the thing is, like, I have a memory If this happened an hour apart in our world, I'd be like, oh, yes, remember when she was a child that was set up. You don't need to put it two minutes apart. Right. And I felt like that kind of talked down to us a little bit. I can see your argument, but I still think that I was so enthralled with it. But then again, that's good craftsmanship of Mm -hmm. directing, of having the, the setup and the payoff like that, of grabbing these scenes from from a big book and... Having the wherewithal to see how one affects something later on and putting mm-hmm. them together. So that's good. But also, is it is it making it too easy? Is it dumbing it down? I don't know. So this is maybe my least favorite part of the movie. And even now, I'm not sure that it's necessarily bad. It might be brilliant. 
I might watch it again and say like, no, the nonlinear thing is brilliant. I don't know about that, but I it did take me out of the movie at times. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I understand like the points that you're making, but I I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that. <laughs> I don't even know what my stance is on it. <laughs> I don't either, but I'm agreeing to disagree. Do you feel that it added to it, though? Or is it just a different take? Because you have to do something a little different. And this is a good way of doing something that makes it quite different from other versions we've seen, but not fundamentally changing anything of the story. So I think one of the things in a movie like this, where you move like through a substantial amount of time, um, I think that... One thing that you lose is loving these characters and being able to recognize their faces and loving them kind of wholeheartedly. And when you have two actors playing the same role, I think you kind of lose that kind of love of that one person because it feels like two people to you. I understand that. And I think that's a good point. But... And I think that's what, what she was trying to go for. Not that I'm like ever assuming I know what like she's going to like Greta Gerwig is doing because she's brilliant. But <laughs> I think that she is trying to get you to love the character as one person, not as a young and an old version. But could that not be done with the same actor playing them, but still have it linear? Yeah. Maybe. I feel like one thing that I lost out on, and there's numerous scenes to contradict what I'm about to say, <laughs> but I feel like I missed out on having a lot of time of them growing up together. Mm -hmm. Because you have them growing up, and now they're adults, and now they're growing up, and now they're adults. You see that outcome that I feel like some of the, the magic of their childhood is lost because right. it's cut up so much. That's a, that's a good point. Um, but I, I still feel like I got all of that, maybe not to such a like substantial degree because we didn't see actual children doing all of this, but I think that this was done in a certain way that it really made me feel like I did understand their childhoods. Because mm -hmm. there, there's great scenes that kind of encapsulate yes. it. But I think the journey wasn't there as much because mm -hmm. we get to see the payoffs so soon. Right. So it's a small criticism. I'm not saying that this ruins the movie, but I I wonder about the motivation of making it like this. Is it to solve those problems? Is it because she thought it it makes for a better story when you get to jump back and forth and see the outcomes instantly? Mm -hmm. Or it gives you the story kind of in reverse almost of like, here's what happens. Now, how did they get there? Because those are all valid reasons. But I kind of just feel like nothing was really added by making a nonlinear. And I know a lot of people would disagree with that. But I think I liked it linear better. So I think one thing that she was trying to do was play to like a modern audience where we're baby fed everything in a movie and there's not a lot of critical thought when you go and see a movie. And I think that this kind of movie is, she was trying to retell a classic for like a very current audience. I think she's definitely modernizing it. And we can talk about the ways she does that successfully. But it's funny that we talk about Greta Gerwig so much. We haven't <laughs> talked about the director this much since uh, since Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. But I think Greta Gerwig is too smart to be like, oh, this will dumb it down for those dummies. I think she has a really good reason for it. But maybe it just didn't work so much on me. Maybe. I think you're a little woman purist. I think that's your problem. <laughs> it might be. You know what? That's actually probably very fair. 
I think I am not as tied to the original version because I read it when I was like quite young and I didn't reread it in school or in like university or anything like that. And then I only saw, I think, the 1994 version very like close to its release date and I haven't seen it since. And honestly, seeing it, yeah, like I said earlier, it was like, it's like seeing it brand new. I think you're you're very correct. Maybe not in the purest sense, but in the <laughs> sense that it's a nostalgia thing. That I think so. My favorite part of the book of the old movie is them growing up together, is the stuff before they become adults. So like book mm-hmm. one, that's my favorite. And that part felt a little watered down, maybe. And of course, you can't make a four hour movie to get all of that in there. Because I think what she does with their adult selves is better better than the 94 version maybe better than the book because she adds things that are are very good she Mm -hmm. gives the characters nuance that i did not see before Mm -hmm. but i think that is to the detriment of the childhood selves and of course you have to if you're going to focus on one you have to lose a little from the other true but i just kind of loved the the little women part of it and this not the big women part it's true this is a very um it was less of a little women and more of like a middle women kind of <laughs> Medium <version>. women. <laughs> Medium women. <laughs> I think that we didn't get quite as much of their adult lives, like after marriage, except for with Meg. Um, and we didn't get as much childhood. We got a lot of their like adolescence and early adulthood. Yes. In this, which I, I liked. I liked that they focused on that. Yeah. And I can't really penalize the movie for neglecting something when they're making the other part better Mm -hmm. so yeah you lost something from one part but she enhanced the other part so i don't know i I feel like we're arguing this in a circle (laughs) no it's true and that's that's the thing we're not really arguing but i guess that's why for me it's an 8 out of 10 movie not a 10 out of 10 sure i think i gave it an like a 9 8.75 or a 9 i really enjoyed it not a 10 like, I do remember the original story, and I think that um, there were just – maybe this is me being a purist. <laughs> it's like I, I really think that there were some things that were changed um, and some things that were changed for the better. But I would have liked to see a little bit more of a, like, firm retelling of the original. You really wanted to see the the parrot subplot. Is that right? No, I You didn't. want to see about how the girls killed the parrot? No. That's, no a, I... that's a little shout out for Laura because she loves the parrot subplot. <laughs> Um, no, I just thought that there were some things that we lost from the original, but True. honestly, great movie. I have recommended it to so many people. My mm-hmm. mom and I saw it together and I think we were both crying in the theater and it was just such a, it was such a nice experience to watch. You know what I might do is, uh, bring this to watch with my mom because we've watched the you 94 should. version before. I wonder if she even remembers that, but finding movies that are fine to watch with your parents are sometimes difficult. It's kind of difficult, yeah. But this is a good one. I agree. This is a good one. I'll stop about the whole uh, time non-linear is, Time part. is a flat circle? Because you know what? Time's a flat circle anyways. <laughs> I yelled at you on the couch today because you said you were going to talk about that on the podcast. I was joking. But what I was actually going to say is that the only other kind of wrinkle it adds is that we know that there's the book written and it's jumping back and forth through time. So is this the actual past or is this Joe remembering the past? Or is this the past as presented in her novel? Because those are three very different things. And 
they give you very different outcomes of mm. how I feel about the book. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the ending. But that's the other thing that it says. Absolutely. Up. We'll have to get our listeners to weigh in on that, I think. I think that's a crowdsource thing and not just a you and I talking about it at our kitchen table. So I feel like with a story like this, we need to be able to kind of talk about each of the characters individually. And each of the performances. Cause and each some of very the performances as well. I feel like there are some incredible female actors who are just like outstanding in these roles, especially roles that have been done multiple times. It must be super daunting to go into roles like this and already have the knowledge that there are people like you who are purists and who think I'm that not it, a purist. who think that it should be acted a certain way. Um, and to be able to kind of sink into that role and like make it your own mm-hmm. and really live that person's life. Live that little woman life. Live that little woman life. And it's Didn't we decide it was medium women? Oh yeah, medium women. <laughs> medium women really shine in this one. Yeah. And it's a uh, a really special achievement if you can be in a movie and have Meryl Streep be one of the weakest performances. Right? And she's not bad. She's, she's Meryl Streep. But she's so But there's so many great things. She's a very things. small character in this. She's one that uh Gained a lot from this adaptation of uh, the character of Aunt March. Because in other versions and in the book, she's just kind of like a, a throwaway character that we don't get to see a lot of these actions. We just hear about them. Right. So, I kind of remember her as like a woman in a black dress who's very grumpy. That's about right. That's that's kind of all I remember about But then her. when you get Meryl Streep, you're going to write some extra scenes for that character. True. Very true. And I think that... Um, benefited the movie because it benefited the relationship with the girls because Joe was never going to respond to that kind of almost pseudo parenting. Whereas Amy is so ready to please that she is going to do absolutely whatever Aunt March says. I might push back on that a little bit because I think that is traditional Amy. We're not even talking about Amy, but this Amy She's not just there to please. She has her mind made up, and it just so happens that it coincides with a lot of what Aunt March wants. True. But we'll talk about that when we talk about Amy. Maybe they're just more compatible personalities. Definitely, definitely. Okay, well, let's start by talking about Elizabeth or Beth March, played by Eliza Scanlon. Um, Definitely one of the smaller characters in this movie, but someone who, like we said earlier, was uh, given a lot more kind of depth and robustness in this version um, and really kind of enhanced the storyline by giving it those softer moments. Yeah, and her death seemed that much more sad in this one because we we get some insight into her she's not just the other sister like she is in a lot of versions um you really see how she enriched each of the sisters lives and um how they all like really really loved her even though she didn't have the fierceness that her other sisters had I already said I really loved all of her scenes with Mr. Lawrence and um, the one scene where uh, she's playing the piano in his house and he goes and sits at the bottom of the stairs to not disturb her. Like, I teared up there. That was such a... That's quietly one of the most beautiful scenes of the movie. Such a moment. Mm -hmm. Because you can see, um, like, you learn that he's lost his daughter and you can see the emotion on his face um, as he walks... He watches her walk up the the kind of the driveway into the house and his servant lets her in and so they never have an interaction all that often in this and um 
it's really amazing to watch him like he's like really happy that she's coming up the walk and then as soon as she starts to play he like kind of I guess gives up on whatever he's working on and he slowly starts to creep down the stairs as she's playing this really beautiful slow melody and then sits at the bottom of the stairs and he's so racked with emotion because it reminds me of his daughter and that was just one of the most like beautiful moments in the movie yeah and maybe uh dark horse runner for favorite character of the movie mr lawrence mm. he gets more in this version and is so good the moment of his that got me is actually when at beth's funeral he's just standing outside oh and God. he just goes like i couldn't i can't bear to go in there i can't imagine that house without her it was just yeah. like one of those moments where you're just like this is real grief. Yeah, and this the way it. he plays it, it's not someone sobbing. It, he plays it like a man who's trying to pretend like, oh, it's just, oh, you know how it is. And well, trying so to play it off a little back bit. Then, right? like, but you can see the underlying emotion. Mm -hmm. And I think it's Chris Cooper, I want to say. But either way, yes. he's able to play a character playing something. Mm -hmm. So you get to see mr lawrence pretending to do something and acting a character acting is so difficult and that scene was uh was quite beautiful it was so beautiful and i think he did a really good job of playing someone from the 1860s 1870s who like is trying to be a man and who is a man um like gender stereotype back then men were men men didn't show emotion they didn't you know throw their all into um anything except for business and industry and being you know that like image of what a man should be back then and i think that him crying at the gate just holding joe's hand and watching that was so amazing because that's like wouldn't be something that would happen so i think we should move on to meg march Margaret March, <laughs> uh, played by Emma Watson. Oh, Hermione. Oh, Hermione. I thought she did such a good job. I love that Hermione is willing to take a non-lead role. Because, you know, she could get all the lead roles she wants. Oh, absolutely. But she probably knew what kind of project this was going to be and mm -hmm. just wanted to be a part of it. And they said, we'll give you Meg. And she's like, done. She didn't demand the, the lead or anything like that. And nope. Yeah, she doesn't get a whole lot to do, but what she does is great. And mm -hmm. they, Meg and John, her husband, quietly have the greatest romance in this whole movie. It's so beautiful. James Norton as John Brooke. He is such a good man in this, and he does such a good job of trying to keep his family alive one and like in in comfort, but also understand that his wife had a glimpse of like you know the fancy life and there are women in the town who have a lot more money than they do and he just wants to make her happy so that they can live their life and be in love and so that she never wants for anything yeah they don't have a whole lot of subplot but there is the bit about buying the material and how he's trying to do all he can so she could have a dress he's willing to give up anything just yes. so she could have a, a little glimpse into that life nice but of dress. course <laughs> meg's so responsible that she's already gone ahead and uh, sold, sold the, the material but meg's in my mind meg's best moment is she has this kind of argument with joe mm -hmm. and at one point she says just because my dreams are different from yours doesn't mean they're unimportant. Exactly. And that was so beautiful because I think we get lost in a little bit of the 
yeah, Joe's rebellious. You can't mm-hmm. tell her what to do. She's not going to marry. She's not going to be like just a housewife that we forget that being that is a legitimate choice. And that's what Meg wants. And the idea of it being like just a wife is so unfair that like true feminism is allowing for that choice and celebrating that choice. Yeah. And Meg's decision to to be in love because she's truly in love is just as legitimate as Joe's desire to be independent and be a writer. And Emma Watson has that scene and it's it's great. And I, yeah, I liked her a lot. She doesn't get a lot to do, but she's good in what she does. One of the things I appreciate is how all the girls really stand up for themselves against each other. There is no pushover sister. There is no sister who says, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just Joe, Amy, and Meg. And they're just, they're, that's, that's just who they are. And, you know, I'm just here being myself. It's not like that and I really appreciate it because they all have their own personalities and like you said they could be a little bit of everybody out there but I think that they all do a really good job of kind of holding their own and that's something I feel that is kind of unique to this version that each one of these characters has that kind of strength because there is some scenes or at least speeches that were invented just for this version that Mm -hmm. really emphasize that Mm -hmm. I also wanted to say that I'm really proud of Emma Watson because she's not pigeonholed into that eight movie character that she had of Hermione. She is able to really become someone else and to kind of play any character. I was really impressed with her. Does she have your favorite career of any of the Harry Potter peoples? Probably. I think Harry Potter himself, who was my least favorite character in the movies... Man, I love Radcliffe's work because he gets, he does weird shit. He does do weird shit. What was the one where he was like naked with a horse? Oh, Equus. That was a play though. Is that that a a film? No, he's done a lot of stage acting. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think that Emma- Swiss Army Man? Yeah. I'm one of the few people that loved that. Emma Watson did a really good job because there's a lot of actors who after doing eight films of the same character and growing up and having like a majority of the world watch these movies and watch her grow up in them wouldn't be able to be any other character. And I think that she did such an incredible American accent and I think that she did such an incredible job of becoming Meg that you honestly don't even think about Harry Potter when you watch it. So next we should talk about Amy March, who's played by Florence Pugh, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress um, at the Academy Awards. Do you have any thoughts? I have some thoughts. I always think you have thoughts. (laughs) I think uh, Florence Pugh is my favorite, at least performance, in this entire movie. Maybe not my favorite character, but my favorite. I think the best performance in this. I think she kind of steals the show. Mm-hmm. It's a character that is like often hated mm-hmm. because what we usually see of her or remember of her is her burning Joe's novel. And then a lot of people think of it as uh, stealing Joe's rightful husband, right? Absolutely. And that's not how it comes off in this one at all. No. And I feel like it would also be really easy to see her as kind of um, like an indulgent child. Like, it's really easy for her to kind of fall into that, like, oh, well, it's all about me, and I'm fancy, and I just want this life, and this is how I want to be, and my life sucks because we're poor, or, like, whatever. Like, I feel like it's really easy to see her cast in that because she gets – she leaves her family, goes to Europe with her rich aunt, and lives this beautiful life. 
And I think that it's really nice to see her played in a way where she's not that person all the time and she's not um, kind of mad at how her family is and how she grew up. Um, She does end up, you know, not marrying the rich guy. And it's really nice to see her kind of character development through that. Doesn't she? Isn't Laurie very wealthy? Well, Laurie is very wealthy, but uh, Fred Vaughn is much richer than Laurie. And she makes a point of saying that to him. I think that she could have had, you know, that fabulous, beautiful, glittery ball gown life. um, Because ultimately, marrying Laurie is moving across the field into that giant house. And yes, it's a giant house, but it's also basically next door to her parents. So I think that um, I like that in the end, she picks to marry Lori and to live close to her family and continue that kind of bond that they have. I think we can't move on from talking about Amy until we talk about her great scene or her great speech, at least. Do you know the one I'm talking about? No, I think you'll have to let, let me in on the secret. Oh, okay. Usually I hate it anytime a character is just going to say all of their inner thoughts or comment directly on the state of the world around them. Oh, I know you hate that. <laughs> Because I was like, yeah, show us, don't tell us. Yet, maybe my favorite scene, my favorite speech, at least, from this film is is when Florence Pugh does exactly that. And it's her talking about the, um, the state of marriage mm-hmm. and about it being an economic transaction and how marriage is the only recourse she has. Mm-hmm. And she has that line first, I think it's Laurie who says, oh, well, the poets may disagree with you. And she says well, I'm not a poet, I'm just a woman. And she talks about how this is the power I have. Mm-hmm. Right now, if I were to marry someone, they could cut me off and I'd have nothing. I can't go out on my own. I can't make it any other way than marrying rich. And I feel like her character, usually we think of her being shallow and greedy because she wants to marry rich. Exactly. And this speech shows us that this is what she can do. She's trying to do something for herself to get by. And this is her way of doing it. Mm -hmm. She's not this brilliant writer. She's not going to do those things. This is what she can do. And this speech is done in such a matter-of-fact way. Mm -hmm. It's not that Amy is angry or even, like, really impassioned in this speech. She's so measured, but still has that, uh, that intense belief underneath that can only be achieved by someone who's experienced a life of having this ingrained in them. Mm -hmm. She doesn't need to be yelling about it. No. This is the state of the world, and she's just letting you know the state of the world. And that speech is so brilliant for what it does about her character, Mm -hmm. but also because we are further removed from that time. Mm -hmm. It's not just a granted that a woman can't go out and get a job. And sometimes we need little things to remind us of that. Oh, exactly. And this speech does that. And gives you so much empathy for her character all in one. And it's just a, a short little bit, but it's uh, it's beautifully done. And I think Florence Pugh really steals a, steals a show in this one. One of my favorite lines of hers, which is, like you said, very much of the time that I think as uh, like today, where women can go out and get jobs and have their own lives and make their own money. She says, if I could not be loved, I would be respected. And I think that she has really thought about this and she's really brought forward the fact that like, okay, well, you know what, in order to help my family, 
I may not be able to marry for love, but I will be able to marry for respect. And I will not marry like some rich man who does not respect me. I will Mm -hmm. ensure that that is like my low bar in this marriage. And she also has some lines about like, you can control who you love a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But one of my favorites, I think is her much earlier, maybe even as a child, when she says, I will be great or I will be nothing. Exactly. She's so she good had this. some, probably some of the best lines in the movie. She's yeah, she's great. You need she to has that check dramatic, out Midsommar. She has that like dramatic air mm-hmm. in her like in her speech and everything. Probably because she she spends so much time with Aunt March and she goes to Europe and everything. But some of the some of the delivery of those lines are just like so spot on. And like you were saying, the child version of her. She really does that well through characterization because yeah. they don't have she's playing someone half her age, mm-hmm. but she's pretty good as good as someone could be. Absolutely. It's still a little odd that she's playing like an 11, 12 year old, <laughs> yeah. but she's so good. Her mannerisms are really great. Man. Medium women. <laughs> okay, well, I think we need to talk about um, Saoirse Ronan as Joe March. I feel like she is the main character of this movie. Is she your favorite performance? I think Florence Pugh might be my favorite oh, performance. Wow. I think that um, Saoirse Ronan might have done one of, like, probably the second best performance in this movie because I really loved her, um, like, her freeness and her dedication to her family. And it's, like, family overall for her. And I think um, that she did such a good job of that and such a good job of being um like anti-stereotype of women for the 1860s um i think that it really she did such a good job without being too modern yes i feel like the touches they did to modernize her are things that play timelessly almost Mm -hmm. maybe things that are done that we're more accepting of she dresses in more masculine clothes and wears like that bowler hat Mm -hmm. and that's something that probably wasn't the case when she was actually doing it yeah but now that we're more familiar with kind of like a non-binary and more androgynous looks that that plays to us better that we get a a greater sense of her character through mm-hmm. those little touches. Because she doesn't care about that stuff. That's yes. not what she's about. And I really appreciated um, that she was never perfectly done up in the movie mm-hmm. because that doesn't really seem right for her character. Um, Meg, like Amy, Beth, they all have moments where their hair is really beautiful and they're very groomed and like they look great. And it matches their character. I don't think that having a moment where Joe is groomed and perfect and looks amazing matches her character. Even at um, Meg's wedding, it's not like her hair is frizzy. She's just wearing a flower crown. She's not wearing a full skirt. She looks like herself. Although that kind of touches on one thing I did have a little issue with is that they are supposedly not very well off Mm -hmm. but they all are wearing very fancy dresses for most of the movie and have like a big giant house so like there's some weird class distinctions here that they seem much more affluent than they have in other other productions and what i took away from the book so i feel like meryl streep addresses that in that um aunt march and father march are brother and sister and aunt March says at one point, well, your father went and lost all of his money. So I feel like he may have had the house from previous times when he 
had inherited money or had been like been able to purchase things with more money um, because his family seems to be pretty well off. No, and I think that's fair. Like if they are a rich family, that's fine. But when a lot of the plot points hinge on them not having enough money to get by, but then you also have them dressed so well, mm-hmm. it's a little incongruous, that's all. That's, that's It's fair. a small thing, but you have to make it look nice because it's, it's, you know, it's a movie. It's, yeah, it's, it's a retelling of a story that's been done seven times. Um, I, I think I agree with that. Um, I loved all of the scenes of Joe in New York, and I thought that um, her writing up until all hours was just like such a neat way to show just how different she was from her sisters and to show how uh, dedicated she was to getting that story out. I feel like Joe's character suffered the most from that non-linear style of storytelling Mm -hmm. I was talking about because we don't get to see the good parts of her until so much later on in the movie because early on all the glimpses we get into her character she's very harsh and humorless and driven yes and that's kind of her her defining characteristic is how driven she is but we don't get to see the heartfelt things until the second half or maybe the last third of the movie even though those things happen maybe earlier in her life and throughout her life it seems like they're all kind of focused at the end so it's not until then that i really found her truly likable She's always mm-hmm. good and well acted, but I didn't find her likable until we get to see those collections of scenes where we get to see kind of the reasoning behind her. Because we don't get that early on. We just get to see her kind of being a dick to people a lot of the time. <laughs> At the beginning of the movie, yes. And I think that speaks to the fact that she feels like an outsider in her family. Yeah, and it's not bad. No. Because she's she's so driven. That's her defining characteristic. But if they had shown it linearly, we would have had mixed in moments of her her rationale or even her softer side that we see sometimes. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I know that's not good podcasting, but I do actually really agree with what you're saying. Thank you. She also has a great speech, which is something I normally hate, but she's saying, this is why I am the way I am here's the state of the world, here's me. But she lays it out and it's it's so well performed. She's It's the part where she's talking about she she wants more than just to be loved. She's mm-hmm. Love is not all a woman is good for. And in those moments, that's where her character really shines. When you, you do get to see the vulnerability of this very driven career woman. When you get to see the inner turmoil that these are the things I want, but this is how the world is holding me back. And usually I would argue that you need to just show that. You need to have her struggling. But that doesn't really fit in with this movie. So when she has that speech where she lays it all out there, it's it's beautiful. So well done. And then as the movie progresses, we get to see more of her complexity, that she's not just a one-note character, and a lot of her selflessness as well. You get to see like the sacrifice she's she's willing to make for her family. Do you think Joe loves Lori when Lori gets married to Amy? I think no. I think that she has always felt so comfortable around him and that she is so focused on being a writer that she's got that kind of those blinders on 
where she just wants to be a writer and she loves the support and the adoration that she gets from Laurie and the comfort, but I don't think that she's in love with him. And so Laurie, I think, thinks that he's in love with her, but by turning him down, I think she's doing him a, like a, a service because Amy has always been in love with him. But what about the letter? Joe's letter, I really... I think she's seeing all of her sisters get married and do great things, and she's feeling a bit like a failure, and I think that she's reaching out for one sure thing that she knew was out there. That may be. Not that it makes the movie better or worse, regardless, but yeah, I could just talk about that for so long, and I wouldn't have an answer. Either answer is is, (laughs) is just as good, but... When she, yeah, she gives that speech about all of these things that she's believed, but then it ends with, but I'm just so lonely. That was heartbreaking. And then, so maybe she is reaching out to Lori just to feel that, even though she doesn't really love Lori, but. I think it's the equivalent of like drunk texting someone that you thought you might have had a connection with. Wow. That's a. (laughs) I think that she found comfort in that relationship and I think that she saw that he loved her and I think that she's trying to put more into it um, that she knew was on his end and trying to like kind of force herself into that. And I think that it's for the best that he married Amy. So then maybe at that point her character is realizing that in fact, she does want to marry someone eventually. Because yes. she'd always said, I never want to marry anyone. I think she realizes she's the last one. And that she that is something that she would like mm-hmm. in her life. And then, of course, at that point, well, he's probably the best one out there. Because they at least have a mutual friendship and respect. And they have something and then, in common, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe. But then <laughs> if she does truly want to get married, that really changes the ending about whether the ending... Uh, we'll talk about the ending later. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to say... And ask you, is $206 million at the box office a good amount of money? Yes, of course. (laughs) Um, I finally picked a movie that actually made money. Oh, I think most of yours do. Like Bride Wars is a runaway (laughs) success, and that's a terrible movie. Most of them are very successful to movies. I finally picked one that made a lot of money that you liked. You finally picked one that I liked. Yes. Okay, yeah, that's that's what I was going for. Also, it has a 95% fresh... Uh, percentage on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It's a very good movie. So it's like a win all around. Well, should we talk about that ending? Yes, let's. It's confounding to me in a lot of ways. <laughs> of course it is. We're ending with this, but I don't want to make it seem like this sums up my ideas of the movie because I, I like this movie. It's a very good movie. I thought you loved this movie. If 8 out of 10 is a love, I love this movie. 8 out of 10 is a love. Okay. <laughs> is it so then like if you you like me like eight out of ten no i like you ten out of ten. Oh, but but it's like from eight to ten is all love eight to ten is love hmm i was more of a like a ten out of ten is a love no okay but then yeah there I has love to be a movie. range no love is the top love ten out of ten is top. Is, ten out of ten is the top as well eight out of ten is also the top it's it's <laughs> It's objectively not the time. Let's talk about the ending. <laughs> Let's. So what do you think of how this movie ended? It's a little different than both the novel and other versions of this we've seen. And that's in line with how this movie seems to be less about Joe's romantic story and more the journey of a writer. I liked it. I liked that they took 
most, I say most, but like most of the romance out of her story. I really like that it's more about her accomplishing something as a woman in a time where women weren't super valued in like the workforce and probably in like writing culture. I think that um, it's really nice to see her succeed first as herself and then also with a man, but afterwards. Does she though? I mean, is she with a man? Well, let me. Can I posit some stuff for you? Yes, of course, always. So the ending bothered me because it gets like meta textual and confusing and muddled. So it is the ending Greta Gerwig commenting on the novel. And she's saying like, Joe shouldn't have uh, gotten married. And Alcott, the writer, was just forced to do that. Is she saying that Alcott never wanted that ending? Because the way the ending comes up, so she's at her publisher and she's written this story where Joe does not get married. Right. The publisher says, no, you have to have her married. And she goes, okay, fine. I'll uh, tack on this ending where she gets married to Friedrich. Why not? But this is an autobiography she's written. Right. Alcott's book also was loosely autobiographical. Right. And then we have like a third layer of maybe this bit is Greta Gerwig talking about her own journey of getting this film made. Like maybe she wanted to have Joe not get married because she believes that's what Alcott wanted. Because Alcott never did get married and never had children. So is the publisher just the producer of this movie? And Joe is both Gerwig and Alcott all at the same time? Whoa, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely can see what you think um, about how Gerwig probably, through a modern lens, would have rathered that Joe did not add that ending to her book, even though Alcott made that how the book ends. The way that the story ends before she sees Friedrich at the... Um, Train station? At the train station. Um, I was going to say at the airport. <laughs> the way that she sees Friedrich at the train station is um, it does feel like an add-on. And it does feel like a romantic moment. So it feels more manufactured than the rest of the movie. It does. And do you think that is intentional? I think so. Why? Because I think Gerwig wanted to show that the that Joe doesn't need a man in her life, but also she wanted to pay like homage to the original book. How does that show that she doesn't need a man? By making it more like a like a romantic comedy moment cuz she's running to the train station yes. to stop him, right? That's if that's not straight romantic comedy exactly. stuff. Exactly. I feel like she shows um that Joe writes an incredible book. It's an incredible story full stop before Friedrich gets to the house. Yes. It is incredible there's romance everybody is happy there's loss there's love there's like all of these things that make a really good book um and i don't think it needs that add-on and i think gerwig is saying like because of the time it needed that add-on because that's what sold so is she doing this in an almost satirical commentary way i think so so here's another thing that i posit for you okay or something that i ask you is joe the character in this world, Little Women is real. This movie is real life. Okay. Is Joe married at the end of this? I don't think so. That's the thing. I think Joe goes 
and she gets her book published. The same book that we saw at the cover with Alcott's name on it, now mm-hmm. with her name on it. Yes. She, she gets that published, and that's the end of her story. When we then go into that other world where everyone is there. Mm-hmm. Lori's there her sisters are there they all have all of these children yes. somehow they're even educating black children which good for them I don't think it was happening at the <laughs> That's time probably not happening in the 1800s but and Friedrich is there mm-hmm. I contend that that is the end of the novel and not, not their her life. life I think so and I think that Greta Gerwig tried to make it so rom-commy feeling like the running through the rain and the the sisters all screaming in the carriage as they go to the station and they're like so excited and so riled up and um they're sitting there with the door open watching and like they kiss in the rain and i feel like she made that so specific that it is the ending of the book and not real life and especially that scene at the end where everyone's just happy and living together in one big house with all these children they're <laughs> teaching and everyone teaches a different subject. Yeah. That's, it's quite over the top, really. It is. It is. So it makes me think that that's just the end of the book and not the end of Joe's story. The end of Joe's story is her picking up that novel and she's made it as a writer on her own. Yeah, I think so. Which I love in one way. But also, I think maybe you're, most of the people who watch this movie won't take that away. Mm-hmm. They'll take away, yeah, it had this happy ending. They're all living together. And that kind of bothers me in the sense that Gerwig's like having it both ways. Mm-hmm. She's like, haha, I got you here, but also we'll give this to people who wanted that. So you take what, what, you, what you want out of it. But usually I'm all for ambiguity in an ending. But this way, although very clever seems like a kind of an indecisive solution to a problem. Right. So I don't know how I feel about that either. I feel like because it's such, like Little Women is such a huge thing. And it's, like I've said many times this podcast, it's been done so many times that Greta Gerwig had to include almost both endings. And she had to figure out a way to make it feel like it was her own. And I agree yeah. with the way that she did it in making that ending feel very rom com which made it feel like it was part of the book. And that you're left to kind of make up your own mind because not everyone is spending an hour and a half talking about it on a podcast and breaking <laughs> down every moment. Um, I, I could f- talk about this so much more. I know you could. Oh, man. But we have to eat dinner. So I feel like... She was putting in both endings and she did it in such a way that you could make up your mind either way. This could be the way that she ends up. And it could be that she ends up alone and this is the ending of her book. And I think the ending of the movie is very ambiguous and I think that you're left to make up your own mind. I always preach how that is what I love, but then I kind of, when it happened, I felt like it was cheating a little bit. Mm-hmm. About taking a, like, well, if you like this, you take that. If you like this, you can take that. If you want her to be independent, you got it. If you want her to have a fairy tale ending, you got that too. Because you can't have it both ways. And two ideas that kind of seem and have been opposing each other throughout this movie. But now talking about it, I was like, yeah, she kind of fucking nailed it though, didn't she? She did. She modernized it. I... She updated it. She remained true to the text. Yeah. Either way. Very good movie. 
You love it. I love it. You love it. He loves it, everyone. <laughs> he loves it. That's another love for the spreadsheet. I think out of the things that you've got me to watch, this and the cheer docuseries are definitely the top two. Oh, so good. I think I need to go back and rewatch that now. So do you have any uh, final thoughts on Little Women from 2019? No, I just thought it was such a nice movie to watch. There are very few movies that I feel good about the entire way through. I think there are so many movies out there right now that are trying to kind of manufacture emotions and make you feel a certain way and then make you feel a different way and then make you feel another different way. And it just like you're you're on a roller coaster of emotions throughout the entire movie. This was just such a nice watch. And I, I really think that everyone should see it because it's just it's a feel good movie the entire way through. And it. It's just like so classic and so amazing. What do you think, Indy? Well, that was that was very astute and well said. I don't know how I could possibly add to that. I've but... had four glasses of wine, so I'm feeling good about that <laughs> answer. <laughs> classic, classic Sam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think what we started talking about at first, I thought I would cut out about all that stuff about who movies are for, but I think we need to leave it in. I think because... we do. I think it kind of finishes up at the end here this movie is for everyone Mm -hmm. if you think it's not for you that might be a feeling on you not on the movie (laughs) what what happened to you like if you say like well i can't watch a movie that's all about these little women then that's that's Uh, on you're a sexist yeah probably (laughs) and then we have big problems with you but there's uh so many great things about it we could talk about how beautifully directed and shot it is. Uh, the performances, of course, are, I think, the the shining moment of all of this. Mm-hmm. The performances are the, are the best takeaway from it. And, of course, I had a lot of criticisms. I felt a lot of the formatting of it, that nonlinear style, I thought was an add-on and kind of cheating in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But in the end, this book and this movie is so important because it represents a type of strength and freedom Mm -hmm. and independence mostly yes for women but for anyone who feels like they don't have that exactly and it doesn't necessarily have to be about like i'm a woman and i see myself on screen you can be like i was broke my whole life and i see myself on screen or i felt different my whole life and i never fit in i see myself on yeah and within those four characters It's not like you'll find one that fits you. You'll find parts of everyone that are something you see in yourself, something you see in your loved ones. And I think these ideas of of strength and independence are the heart of the book. And that is still present in this film, regardless of all these other things that have been added or subtracted. The heart of of Alcott's work is so present in uh, in Gerwig's, mm-hmm. and go check it out. It's a very good movie. Go watch it right now. We should have seen it already. Oh, yeah, spoiler alert. Should we have said that at the beginning? <laughs> no, I feel like we're like, what, 55 episodes in now? 54 episodes in? We should People should know what our whole game is here. That's true. 
Um, so next week we will be back with the trailer and the um, teaser for Indie's next movie. Oh, I had to pick something, yeah. And then we'll probably talk about some more streaming picks because we're still kind of locked down. Exactly. We are still in quarantine and we are um, still watching a lot of content all day. So uh, we will be back next Monday. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hello and welcome. <laughs> question mark? That was a heavy question mark. Okay. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Are you answering a phone? Yeah, Hello? I was. Who's this? This is a podcast. Thanks for calling. It's a call in show today. <laughs> that was a better intro than I was going to do. <laughs>